This podcast is intended for mature audiences. Listener discretion is advised. For the better part of a year, Eldon Kidd and Tim Burson had teamed up and made a living by passing people over the border from Tijuana to San Diego. They were good at it and getting better every day. But all of that was about to change. For Tim, anyway. We were at the beach. I had the hood up on my van, and I was working on the engine. I was doing some kind of maintenance. And a guy came up and said, you know, you know how much to pass? And I said, well, solo brinca or Los Angeles? The brinca is the jump. The word means jump. So if you just go over the border and you dump them off, that's cheaper than if you're taking them into Los Angeles. It's more money to do that. So all of a sudden, handcuffs on my wrist, got handcuffed to the steering wheel, and it was a police officer. It was a Mexican police officer. I'm thinking I'm fucked. <laughs> I know, really, it's like, this is it, you know? So when I got to the police station, I was handcuffed behind my back. Then a couple more officers came. I got punched in the stomach. I had a nice pair of sunglasses on. Those got slapped off my face. They asked where my, my companion was, su compañero. And I said, I don't have one. They're asking me questions and I'm, I'm, I don't speak Spanish. I don't have any money. I don't, you know, I'm pobrecito. So then they just hustled me into the bathroom, into one of the stalls and kind of forced me down on my knees in front of the toilet. No, no. Tim was nearly drowned that day. But this wasn't the end for him. He was no use to the authorities if he was dead. They stand me up. They take the, the handcuffs with the esposas in, in Mexican. It means like your spouse, that's esposas is handcuffs. So. So they take them off and they go, okay, you bring us money and you keep working. You bring us $400 a week is what they said. And then one guy said, he says, I have, a, I have my niece wants to go to Disneyland yet. Maybe you can help me out. Because in the, the police system in Mexico, it's, it's an entrepreneurship. They can do whatever they want to bring in extra money. La mordita, they call it, the bite. A little bit of, you know, payment. After his violent brush with Mexican authorities, Tim was understandably shaken, and every bone in his body was sending a single clear message. Run. Once I was free, I went back to the motel, I cleared out, got all my stuff, and I hightailed it out of there. I was out of there. It wasn't until Tim was back home in Santa Cruz that he called Eldon to tell him what happened. He goes, well, what do you mean? <laughs> he couldn't believe that I just left. I said, no, I'm out of there. He was treated to some swirlies. 
It traumatized him so much that I couldn't get him back for two years after that. To this day, I still kind of call him Swirly. Without Tim, Eldon's entire operation had suddenly been hobbled. His tried and tested methods for crossing would have to be thrown out, and he knew it. But to survive as a coyote in the ever-changing landscape of the border, one must learn to adapt. And Elton could adapt better than most. This is American Coyote. I'm your host, Andrea Lopez Villafana. In our third episode, Elton transforms from an amateur people smuggler into a highly skilled and wily coyote. As you might suspect, the absence of a reliable partner like Tim initially made Elton's job more challenging. But he soon discovered there were benefits to being a lone operator. He was very useful in a lot of ways. So everything has to change around a little bit. After that, 80% of the trips that I did, I did by myself. Because if you're caught, there's no witness. Nobody can tell on you. You don't have to rely on anyone else. Yet, many obstacles still remained, starting with basic communication. I could not speak Spanish very well. I wanted to understand, and I, I missed a lot of details. Of course, Eldon couldn't pause operations to learn Spanish. So, he'd have to settle for on-the-job training. After a while, um, more words became familiar, and I remember a certain time when I was listening to the radio where words were coming in in Spanish and staying in Spanish. And that's the transition. If you come in manzana and you go apple, there's a certain time and it seems to happen suddenly where manzana is a manzana. It's not an apple first. And then it becomes more comfortable. In the meantime, Eldon kept crossing, doing whatever possible not to get caught. It's actually dual jeopardy because the Mexicans have their group called the Grupo Beta, and they are looking for people who are crossing into the U.S. So you're always on alert on both sides. They're going to get you here, and they're going to get you there. A good example is there's a huge cemetery right next to the border. They patrol there all the time looking for people who are gearing up to make the nightly run. My group, I would give them flowers and a little candy called Lucas that has chili powder in it. If they saw the group Obeta, they were to put it in their eyes so that they could have actual real tears. So if the group Obeta came by, here's some really sad people at a gravesite, and they would pass them by. While the Federales proved to be little more than a nuisance to Eldon, the United States Border Patrol became the real adversary. Despite a couple close calls, Eldon had successfully evaded detection so far. But Eldon also knew they only had to catch him once in order to upend his whole operation and his family's livelihood, which was why he held one strategy above all others. 
I always changed my tactic a little bit. I wouldn't let it go stagnant. Immigration, Border Patrol, they're in the trenches. They're not stupid. If they see the same thing going on two or three times, they're gonna, hmm, what is this? In the early days of running people, I would hide in plain sight. I would set up my tent right next to the main patrol road of the Border Patrol. I would stay there, I would invite them for coffee, I would speak to them, they got to know me. I'm a regular American guy, interested in nature, cactus, birds. Then I said, I'm having a group of Boy Scouts come by. We would love to cheer you on if we could get your radio frequency. And that would be just wonderful to listen to you in the night and listen to you catch those guys. Is that something that you could do? Of course. Here's our radio call signs. That was world changing for me because now I could hear what they were saying. Thanks to this very simple scam, Eldon now had real time intelligence on his greatest adversary and he could track the Border Patrol's movement moment by moment. So I'm listening to all their transmission. And it also helped, okay, we have a group here, we have a group here, seven, eight in the morning, they gather the groups together, they pick them up at daylight. Perfect time to continue the trip because they're very busy loading up and processing. So once I had that code, you have the golden ticket to get in. Keys to the kingdom. One of the code words they have with the Border Patrol is called RTM, which means returning to Mexico. If I was going across the desert where tracks would be a concern, I had little sew-up booties made of carpet that they would put on, so it was hard to see which way you were walking. A train tracker, of course, would know. So if I was going up a particular canyon and they said, there's a big monkey fella in the front and a bunch of other people behind. Let's wait for him at this crossing. Whoops, now I'm RTM. Never mind, abort, they're going back to Mexico. If you know their plan, then you can adjust your plan. Many of Eldon's plans were so inventive or so bold the underfunded, understaffed, and unimaginative government agency tasked with patrolling the border never stood a chance. During pheasant season, everybody gets a BB gun, everybody gets an orange vest 80 yards apart, and we walk from Mexicali through the asparagus fields right up to Highway 8, get in the car, we're done. Nobody shot a bird. During the Christmas time, why not strap a big boombox to the front of the bicycle playing Christmas music and have five or six Santas riding right across the border, spreading joy while they go. So that worked very well as well. The next time it's bird watchers. Everybody's got binoculars and a bird identification book. Some people might remember the Minutemen movement in Arizona where local Redneck types were patrolling the border on their own. During that time, I would dress up my group with plaid shirts, Levi's, an insulated vest, 
and walk right through them. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games. Afford Anything talks about how to avoid common pitfalls, how to refine your mental models, and how to think about how to think. Paula, while certainly you can mess up on a million dollars a year, it is far less likely than it is on $30,000 a year. Right. I would meet wonderful people that were struggling with a budget that was super tight. It was 100%. You need to make more money. Make smarter choices and build a better life. Afford Anything, wherever you listen. If I were to write a coyote's guide, I think number one would be safety. People lose their lives every year. This is something unfamiliar to them. If they're from the desert, they're not used to the ocean. If they're from the ocean, they're not used to the desert. There are dangers that they can't imagine. A lot of the people are very provincial. They've never been out of their small little town. You need to be prepared. You need to have a first aid kit. You have to be willing to take their safety very seriously. Once they're across, it's very small price to pay to get them a new set of clothes to go home to their family looking dignified, being proud of themselves. Make sure that they do not feel compromised. And if you can make them feel safe, and toss in a little bit of levity on the trail, then that's fine too. The combination of his clever schemes and the respect Eldon showed for those he crossed helped him cultivate a trustworthy reputation. And soon, he was a coyote in demand. Being a coyote is definitely a word-of-mouth business. You can't advertise. After a very short time, I became known in the community around here in Riverside especially as the person who could bring their family member over safely. The advantage of knowing the people that you brought across were that they're not going to dine and dash. You know the family. They're not going to just come over, jump out of the car, and run away. Vetting those he crossed was also an important aspect of Eldon's success as a coyote. As one problematic individual in the group was all it took to doom everyone else, Eldon included. And his process for vetting, in true Eldon fashion, was entirely based on instinct. My parents always taught me, do not judge a book by its cover. And I do every day. I judge everybody by their cover. And if I don't get a good feeling from someone, they don't come. If they have a tattoo on their forehead that says hate, of course, you know, they're, they're not coming. Also, if you bring in someone who has been deported as a felon, you bring him back in, there are extra charges that you incur. When the group was together, I would address the men. I would say, men, we are now 
for the next day or two a family. And these are your sisters, and these are your cousins. And they think, okay, would I trust my niece? Would I trust my wife with this guy? Yes. This is not a party. This is serious business, and everybody needs to help each other out. And when someone broke the rules, Eldon's reaction was swift and decisive. There were occasions where someone had bad behavior on the trip, mostly men who decided to be a Casanova. And I have no qualms. And in fact, it is good business to dump them off the trip because that word gets around. This guy was inappropriate and he got left in the desert. So it only helps to further develop my reputation. Being a coyote is a dangerous business and you have to be prepared for the worst. There's heat, there's dehydration, there's cold. Dehydration is the biggest killer on these trips. People underestimate the time a crossing will take or just how oppressive the climate can be. And in many cases, they simply don't bring enough water to survive the journey. And the desert is littered with reminders of this danger. I decided to take a really hard route that was quite remote. I saw some cloth blowing in the wind. I thought it unusual, went over. And if someone had died, it looked like a year before, possibly. Now, mostly just, just rib bones, just dust, just little shards of, of clothing. Uh, it makes you see how, how fragile life is once you get out of your comfort and safety zone. Then there is the hostility of the land itself. There are countless opportunities to trip and fall, to twist or break an ankle, rendering you helpless, crippled and vulnerable to a host of other natural dangers. Lots of snakes. I've had black widows climbing all over me. There are scorpions that are not deadly, but they really do hurt. And probably one of the most annoying is the Choya cactus. They call it a jumping cactus because it hits you in the back of your leg or the back of your foot, and then you kick your other leg, and it seems like it's just jumping to body parts. It's toxic, it's barbed. And so I always had to carry a flattened fork. The only way that you can get that cactus off is to insert the fork and pry the cactus off of the person. Then of course, there is the danger of being caught, arrested, incarcerated, fined, humiliated, or abused by authorities. While your group is rerouted back, back to wherever they're running from, forced to face the treacherous journey in reverse, or perhaps a grisly fate in their native land. The worst dangers are the other smugglers who, in many cases, are addicted. They've got to have their money. 
They don't have a group, which is common because they don't have a reputation. They have to wait at the terminal to look for somebody who will be their next client or their next victim. And if they don't have a job, they're going to wait for you on the trail. One thing you can depend on, if I see three guys over here and they're watching my group over here, I have as part of my equipment what I call my lucky stick, and it's a Maddox handle. And if I charge them with that Maddox handle, I don't know why, but it never fails. They always run away. Even though, of course, three people, they could take me down. But something about the whole situation makes them uneasy, and they, they always run away. Of course, being an American coyote who looked the way he looked gave him a certain mystique, one which he only sought to perpetuate. I ran into other coyotes, but there were no other Americans doing it. And in the Tijuana and Arizona areas, I perpetuated the myth that I was a corrupt border agent, and that's why I always made it. And it made me slightly untouchable to them, like, well, don't mess with this guy because he's a border agent. He's a corrupt border agent. I didn't start the rumor, but I did not refute it either. But not every competing coyote respected or feared Eldon. On one trip, he faced some challengers on the trail who sought to intimidate and embarrass him. I was hiding in a popular little hiding spot waiting for the right time to move. There were two other coyotes there that had their group in the same place. And I was explaining to my group in my really bad Spanish at the time what they needed to do. The other coyotes were mocking me and hurt my feelings. And I said, hey, just let me do my thing here, you know, you're making me feel bad. So they went on with their, what they call their burla, just making fun. And uh, I guess because of the stress and the whole situation, I resorted to some violence. And I, I always carry with me zip ties, in case you need them. So I zip tied them, I took their wallets, and I took their three people. And that's it. And I feel sorry for them, but nobody likes to be made fun of. And then there were the other professionals, those who both respected their groups and made careers out of this dangerous, illicit business. Even Elda knew better than to cross them. There was a coyote that I saw on a regular basis. He was a short, stocky man. I never got too close, but he was dressed in military-type uniform. And when groups were sharing the same road, it was customary that you never intermingle or get close to each other. And he had what sounded like a 45. And when he saw my group, he would rack a shell, like a rattlesnake rattling his rattle. And I thought that was pretty cool. However, Eldon's wife, Janice, didn't find this to be pretty cool. Upon hearing about this well-armed rival coyote, 
she decided to take matters into her own hands, despite her professed religious pacifism. She knew of the dangers, so she had a friend of a friend get me a gun because she felt like, of course, we don't want you to shoot anyone, but we want you to come home. Now I had one that I could rack a shell in, and it was almost like our how-do-you-do fist bump. With a firearm at his side, Eldon had completed his transformation. He was a coyote now, capable, respected, and not to be trifled with. But like a distant desert thunderstorm, a great change was on the horizon. And once again, Eldon would have to adapt to survive. Generally, the people that I brought across disappeared into society. I wasn't much involved with their new employment or their new life. Although there were some that I did keep in contact with, and with the invent of social media, many people reached back out to me from my past. Some I cannot remember because we're talking about a thousand plus people. Some I do, and it was always gratifying to see how they, in most cases, obtained citizenship and became contributing members of the society. We contacted many people who Eldon crossed in his years as a coyote. All spoke about him with adoration, but few would talk about their experiences on the record, citing fear of retaliation or deportation but some of them have since become legal citizens of the United States and felt comfortable sharing their stories. I've been back and forth probably two or three times. Um, the first time I came, I was uh, 18, and I actually ran away with my son. That's Mona, a native Belizean who found herself in an abusive marriage at a young age. I was a battered wife, and... Um, it had gone really bad one day, and my son was kidnapped. I needed to get out. And I had recently come to Miami for a travel agency course, and so I had a visa. You didn't have an idea of how big the world was until I got on that airplane and I landed in Miami. And so when I went back, my ex-husband had taken my son, and um, I decided that that I couldn't do it anymore. I knew that no matter where I hid in Belize, that I would be found. And so I wrote two tickets, one for myself and one for my son, and I came to the U.S. Like others in Mona's situation, she overstayed her visa with her son. After nearly a decade of living illegally in the United States, she'd made her way out to Los Angeles, where she crossed paths with Eldon Kidd. They hit it off, becoming fast friends. Wow. 
when I met him, he was so willing to become my friend and show me a different side that I hadn't seen. His motto, I guess, is it has to be an adventure today and every day. So that part of it was exhilarating. Just you're just driving down the road and he sees, you know, a windmill and he pulls over, jumps the fence, runs across the field, gets up on the windmill, waves at you and comes back down. And so the whole day felt like you had lived. And so coming from no family, I had no family here in the U.S., just myself and my son. And then you meet this person that brings you into his family, takes you, meets his his mom, his dad, his children. I like that. And so he allowed me to to see that. And I appreciated that. A few years later, Mona returned to Belize to help her aging father with some of his business affairs. The danger of her ex-husband had faded, and she felt safe living in her native country again. But now that she had left the United States, she couldn't return without reapplying for a visa. And then, Eldon called. He calls and he says, hey, I'm going to run a group of people from Sinaloa, Los Mochis, over to Creel, if you want to meet me there. I said, no, I don't have that visa. He says, you don't need that. Don't worry about it. And we crossed that this the Arizona. So we had a van full of tourists and a couple of the kids and his dad. So the van was full and we had a trailer with all the camping equipment as well. He and I are the only ones in there that know that we're going to do this. And I'm the only Hispanic person in the van, okay? So he gets to the border and the woman says, where are you coming from? And he says, you know, we're coming from the Copper Canyon to Creel. And um, he says, well, you have a lot of equipment. We're going to need to do an inspection. Sure, pull over there. So she signals us to the right. And because the vehicle is so long, he's already now pulled into on the U.S. side. And he pulls over by the fence, and no one waiting there for immigration to come and check us out. He comes out, opens the side door, and says, Mona, why don't you go to that store across the way there and buy us some sodas? And so I stepped out of the van, he gives me some money, and as we're walking away from the van, he says, go in there and wait for me until I come and get you. And that's exactly what I did. And so 10 minutes goes by, and then 15 minutes goes by, and eternity, and he's still there. I can still see the van. And I start to panic because the store owner is now getting frustrated with me. And so I made a purchase and started to walk out. And there's an immigration patrol vehicle. And there's Eldon. Eldon comes over, puts his hand around me, and very casually says, well, it's a good thing that you went to the store. I said, why? He says, well, because the lady opens the van and says, 
well, you're either all Canadians or all Americans. He says, and I don't know what I would have said to explain you. And immediately all your nervousness is gone because he's turned this into a funny moment. While you're living it, you feel like it's the end of your world, but, you know, he makes it okay. Over the next three decades, Mona built a lucrative career in finance, raised a family, and became a citizen of the United States. I've lived in my car. I have had three jobs, cleaned the toilets to make ends meet. It doesn't matter. You're here on your own and you're going to make it. And you're not going to rely on public assistance out of pride. You went to America because it was a dream. You could be free here. Mona is just one of the many people Eldon helped to successfully begin again in America. And as Eldon passed more and more people across the border, his legend spread and his business boomed. After the course of a year, I had quite a following. When Maria makes it over the border and reunited with her husband, and she tells the story, my privacy was guarded. I was respected. I was treated correctly. I show up in brand new Kmart clothes, showered and clean. That story gets passed around. So my load of new citizens was heavily tilted towards women. And I also did not charge for children. This meant Eldon was rarely home while working to support his family. In fact, Eldon's services were in such high demand, it became difficult for him to separate work from family time. To bond with my dad, when he would come home, he would cameo and you'd have these potent, really fun experiences with him. And they were all usually wrapped around camping trips. So he hadn't been home for a long time, and he, he dangled the carrot in front of us that he was going to take us camping when he did get home. Yay, Dad wants to spend time with us. Where are we going to go? So we all pack up this big 15-passenger van, which he keeps only the front seat in. The back seat is a makeshift bed. We go over the border, and he parks us the family in a campground of some sort. And he's listening to radio frequencies of border patrol and cops of some sort. And I'm bored out of my mind. So after that three hour wait, where there's, mind you, no cell phones, we have no books, it's dark outside, we're singing John Jacob Jingleheimer Schmidt at the top of our lungs just to stay occupied. And all of a sudden, he comes to the back of the van door and there's two kids. And we have to hide the kids underneath the makeshift mattress behind us. But then now we're driving back over the border. And we come to the border patrol stop and we're all very nervous. We've never been accomplices to his crimes before. 
my dad, I remember him saying, we're getting to the checkpoint, everybody. Everybody looked white and happy. So we all put on a smile and we're very quiet and we're very nervous and we crossed the border with these two kids underneath us. I guess I could say they were innocent participants. They were really trying to be a holy family. And I would always chide them a little bit saying that we are a criminal family now. And it would uh, upset them, but the boys kind of liked the idea of being, uh, being criminals. While money was the initial driving force behind Eldon's people smuggling operations, his growing dedication to this illicit trade seemed to resonate somewhere deeper. Crossing people provided for my family. But it's something that I would not do unless I really enjoyed it. Unless I felt almost as if it were a calling for me to gather the different skills that I had and put them into one bucket and use them for the better good. And this calling, this desire to help the greater good, to help the less fortunate, would ultimately lead to the darkest days of Eldon's life. On the next episode of American Coyote, Eldon must negotiate a changing and increasingly dangerous border. As things got more difficult, things got more dangerous. And I had to keep moving east into environments that were much harsher. And ends up in a situation he never saw coming. I was driving back from a tour with a motorhome, and I was pulled over, and the cops came, tore the motorhome open, and someone on my trip had stashed away some pot. American Coyote is created, written, and produced by Eli Corris and Joshua Schaefer of Pegalo Pictures. Executive produced by Jason Hoke and produced by Andrew Richards of Imperative Entertainment. And produced by Alvin Cowan. Original music for the series is composed by Joshua Klebe. Assistant editing by Max Drankpole. Sound recording by Nick Sinakis and Matt Stouter. Sound editing by Joshua Schaefer and Nick Sinakis. Sound design and sound mixing by Craig Platty. Poster design and graphics by Jeff Quinn. Production legal by Sean Fawcett of Raymond Legal PC and Davis Wright Tremaine, LLP. Host record by Deborah Reeves and Signature Sound in San Diego, California. Please subscribe, download, and share these episodes and follow us on social media for extra content and updates. I'm your host, Andrea Lopez Villafaña. Thanks again for listening.